0: Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. We're going to turn to Corinthians chapter 14. We're closing out the section of Corinthians. One of the things that's the practice of our church is to, uh, for the bulk of our preaching and our study, our time of worship together we move through scriptures, we move through books of the Bible, we handle passages as they arise in the book in the order in which God gives them to us and we look at what God is saying to us from those texts. Some of those texts are easier and some of those texts are difficult and so that's part of the the work we have together as we look at these passages. And we've been the last couple of weeks looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. It's a section of 1 Corinthians that's addressing the issue of spiritual gifts. And we we uh, want to hear God's Word and God's instruction and direction to us as a church. One of the reasons we're looking at 1 Corinthians is because our theme this year is uh, connect, being connected as a church, being connected in relationships with one another, how we function together, how we love one another, how we serve one another, so that the church can be an expression of God's glory and goodness and that the the truth of Jesus is seen by the world around us and so as guests and people come to our church they should recognize and sense that God is here at work in our lives shaping us changing us and we're inviting them to come along and see what God is up to and so we do celebrate the work of the church Uh, In our text today, there is one passage of Scripture, a couple of verses, two and a half verses, that are kind of tough and that sometimes are picked up and used kind of independently to make a certain case about how the church should operate or function. I want to talk about that process first. I've been reading this book that I would highly recommend. I I love the book. It's called No God But Allah or Jesus. A former Muslim investigates the evidence for Islam and Christianity. It is written by Nabil Qureshi. I hope I said that right. Um, Fascinating guy. He came to America to to get his uh, M.D., his medical license, his doctorate, and, uh, and he was a Muslim, and he knew he was coming to America that had a lot of Christians. He'd run into Christians, and he uh, believed certain things that he would get into debates and discussions with Christians, and he was convinced that Islam was right and Christianity was wrong. And which is all makes sense and fine and we should long and desire to have those kinds of conversations with people who don't fully understand the gospel or are investigating the gospel. We want to have those conversations but uh, it was surprising to hear what his number one defense or what he thought was the fatal flaw in Christianity and that was the divinity of Jesus. Because he said that no, no place in the scriptures does, God, does Jesus ever say, I am God. And he thought that was the death nail. That he had that in his back pocket. He could pretty much wheel and win any and every argument. And he would use certain scriptures like the Gospel of John, verse uh, seventeen, chapter 17, verse 3. When Jesus said, now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Mr. Qureshi would say that that statement sounds very similar to the confession that every Muslim must make. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the prophet, the messenger of Allah. And he saw that Jesus was a legitimate prophet, and Therefore, Jesus was saying the same thing as as Muhammad, that God is great, Uh, uh, Muhammad is just a prophet, and Jesus points to God as great, and Jesus is just a prophet. Another passage that he used is John 14, 28, second half, B. If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. This shows Qureshi's opinion that Jesus was separate from God, Or he also used John 5:19. Jesus gave them this answer. "I tell you the truth: the Son can do nothing by himself. He came to do only what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does." All this just shows. Jesus' dependence and reflection of God the Father, who is true, and he never claimed to be God. I bring this up. You might say, well, okay, I thought we were talking about, is this the Islam day or something? No, no, no I bring this up because of this common practice, this danger that we at any time, and for many various topics, will take a verse of Scripture and use it for a particular point of view. Now, uh, Qureshi uh, was taking verses of Scripture and using it to prove that Jesus never claimed to be God while neglecting the context There is always a context surrounding verses of Scripture, and we must seek to understand the context in the paragraph that we find a verse of Scripture. We must find the context within the book where we find that paragraph and what the context is, what determines the setting of that verse. And then, inevitably, we must find the context of the whole Bible. And so anytime that we just cherry pick or, or select individual verses to make a point, it is required. That's why we study the scriptures and it's, a, it's an important thing to do to read together and read sections and to know your whole Bible because that, that provides the context for every individual statement in the Bible. And it's, and it's cool to know that Qureshi did come to realize that Jesus is God because he began to recognize the context of the gospel of John. All of those verses were pulled from the gospel of John. All, all of those verses speak of the relationship that Jesus has with the Father, but not the essence of not the 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 divine identity that jesus shared with god the father but he talked about the relationship certainly jesus came submitted himself followed the will of the father did only as the father directed and obeyed the will of the father that spoke of his relationship with the father as he willingly submitted himself to the father's direction but it didn't say that he wasn't divine and if you look at the The gospel of John, if there isn't a gospel that speaks more clearly of the divinity of of Jesus than the gospel of John, think of John chapter 1 verses 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word in 14 became flesh and dwelt among us. That's at the beginning of the book. Think of at the end of the book when Jesus after his resurrection and his disciples are struggling with uh, Jesus is alive how could that be and Thomas doesn't know and doesn't believe and he says not until I put my fingers in his hands or put my hand in his side will I believe and Jesus appears before him and says put your fingers in put your hand in my side and Thomas says my Lord and my God that that book ends the book that's the, the context of the book of John. We learn that Jesus certainly was in an, a relationship of submission to the Father. But in essence, he was the second person of the Trinity, equal with the Father. And that comes when we understand the context. So, we're going to be looking at a verse. Uh, we're going to look at a series of verses because we're in Second Corinthians uh 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It's a section of uh, of Corinthians in 12 through 14 that's talking about how spiritual gifts are used. And remember, Paul says in chapter 12 that there is a great diversity of gifts given to the believers in the church at Corinth. Therefore, I would say there's a great diversity of gifts given to us as the Compass Church. And that God wants to use us. He gifts us to participate, to be involved in the church. But the Corinthians were using the various gifts to uh, kind of stand over, lord it over one another. To make separation, to show superiority to one another because of specific gifts. And Paul says, no, you you have violated the church because the church is diverse in gifts, but it is united in unity. The picture he uses is of the body. Every specific spot, part of our bodies, whether visible or not, my liver, my kidneys, those are all important. Even though I don't dress them up or shave them or put any aftershave or anything on them or anything. They're important and every part of the body is important. So there's great diversity and there is a necessary unity. And you do not stand against one another because there's diversity. God gave the diversity for the purpose of the unity. And then in chapter 13 he says the ground of all of that is love. Remember that the love chapter. And everything that we do as Christians should be flowing out of a heart of love that God has given us in Christ. What we see of the love of God displayed in the life of Christ and what we experience of the love of God by the Holy Spirit making us new people. Everything that we do must be moved and shaped and coming out of the love that God has given us. Otherwise, it's useless. If you don't have love, it cancels everything. And then in chapter 14, remember last week, if you, if you weren't here, a little re- reminder there, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 25, Paul is using two gifts as examples of all the gifts, I think. Two gifts, tongues and prophecy that are operating in the church. Now, tongues... We defined as that kind of prayer language, but can be spoken and interpreted in the church. Tongue should be practiced or used in the church only when there's an interpreter. Prophecy should be more prominent in the church. Why? Because of edification, the principle of edification, everything that happens in the church because God has called us from various backgrounds, made us his people, gifted us in various ways. When we come together as a community together, what's the primary thing we should be experiencing and doing? That is edifying one another and growing up into Christ, reflecting who he is. Demonstrating the life and the grace and the goodness that he is in all that he brings us as believers. So the principle of the church should be edification. In the second part of chapter 14, Paul adds one more. It's not really in contrast, it's in addition. And that is orderliness. So I've titled the message, The Church, Ordered and Participative. And we're looking at Paul talking to this first century church of Corinth. And they're coming from all different backgrounds. Most of them, a chunk of them, are Gentiles. They haven't grown up in Judaism. They don't know all of this stuff. This is a new move of the Spirit of God and the wonder of God's grace made available to all people through Jesus Christ. And that grace is made available today to anyone who will come and receive Jesus. And in receiving Jesus, you receive life, direction, and purpose, and the promise of a relationship with God. You're made new. You're made his people. And once that happens, you're brought into a church. And then we're asking, how does this church function? And so there were a lot of gifts and a lot of things happening. We don't know all the particulars as Paul does. Paul wrote this letter 2,000 years ago, we're trying to understand what the situation was in Corinth, and we might not ever really understand how the church operated. But the principles are that a church must come together, they must stand together, they must live together, so that there's edification of one another that's growing up into Christ, being more like Christ, and the display of our various gifts together magnifies the truth and the message of Christ. And when we come together, we must be orderly. And that's what Paul seems to be hitting on in this last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Orderly. Now, let me pick up. We're going to just read verses as I'm explaining them. So, we're not going to read 26 through 40. First, we're going to look at my first principle that we get from this passage, and that is order and participation are held in balance. And that's what Paul is driving at here. So, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together... Each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Look at verse 40 at the end. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. As we look at verse uh, 27, Paul says, If Anyone speaks in a tongue, two or two or at the most three should speak. Verse 28. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet. Verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. What we have here is orderliness. Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth. There is a way that you should let these gifts and these participations happen it shouldn't just be that there's ten prophets stand up and then ten people with tongues and interpretation no there is to be a limit to it there is to be some order to it there's so, there's a movement and direction in a worship service to hear and understand what God is doing in the context of the community and that's not just free-for-all, off in every direction, and for however long. There is some orderliness to it. That's what's being driven. But notice verse 26. When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, an interpreter. What Paul is doing is he's saying that the church at Corinth is kind of chaotic. They're not very orderly. There might be some speaking in tongues and then someone prophesying and they're kind of compe- com- competing with one another in the congregation. It seems a little chaotic. Paul is trying to bring order. And what, what, what we normally do when we bring order is we shut everything down and say, don't do this, don't do that, do that, and you just stand here and you stand here and we're good. Uh, but that, Paul doesn't do that. Paul wants to encourage participation. He doesn't want to shut everything down. He wants to give an opportunity for those with a hymn and with a tongue and with a a revelation to contribute to the life of the church. But don't do it in a way that creates disorder. I think that, you know, that's an important principle for us. I think that maybe... If we were to learn something from this text, which I'm, I think we all need to learn something from this text, is that we tend for the ordered too much. We have down how we worship. We have down that we come in and we sing three songs and we do a, an announcement and we hear a message and then we're done and we better be done by 12 o'clock. Um, I, I appreciate that you don't push me that too hard, just a little. Uh, but, but we have it the order part down. And maybe we're missing some of the participation. So we're kind of on the opposite side than the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church is coming together. They're excited about the Lord. They want, everybody wants to give a hymn. Everybody wants to give a word of testimony. Everybody wants to speak up and prophesy. And they're, they're coming together. And it's just happening so much that Paul's trying to bring order to it. I think it's good. Order. And participation are to be held in balance. And for the Corinthians, they need a little more order. For us, we need to recognize that participation is important. I remember watching, seeing a cartoon years ago about a guy that said, Oh, I don't have to go to church anymore. Because if you go down to that church, I know that. At 10.15, uh, they'll be finishing their last of the third song. And then 10.15 to 10.25, they're going to be doing announcements and, and the offering. And then 10.25 to 10.50, to there'll be a sermon. It's the same thing that they've done for years and years and years. And it never changes. Um, there's somewhat of an indictment there. Because we don't want to get so ordered that we're, it's old hat. It's just... Wrote. It's automatic. There is a sense in which we as a church need to be hearing of what God is doing in one another's lives. We need to be encouraging participation and activity. Now, I'm not saying we don't do that. Maybe our services are a little Ordered, but we have a lot of participation in our church, and I thank God for that. We have people that serve in, in all the ministries and all the children's ministry in the nursery. We have a WANA that's pretty demanding for commitments and people. We have small groups, we have adults on the school class. We have lots of things happening, so I'm I celebrate that, but I want to be careful that we don't order our worship service so much that. It doesn't seem like we're doing all those things. So we want to, we as a staff, always talk about how can we emphasize participation while being ordered. And that's a value we must have. That's a value we learn from this text. Second, church uh, specific instructions about order in regards to evaluation of gifts. So Paul is trying to address this issue with the Corinthians. Everybody's bringing something. Everybody wants to participate. But Paul says, no, let's wait a minute. Verse 27, if if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time, not in a bunch. Someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, that speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Verse 29, two or three prophets should speak. The others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. You can see how Paul is trying to give order and definition to What's happening in the church, which seems to be spontaneous and participation and freedom to express. And the verse 31 you, for you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. So, again, that note of, uh, of building up, encouraging, learning from our time together. And so let's make sure that we realize that we're coming together as God's people, where God is at work in our lives, and we have something to celebrate. We come here to be energized and to participate, not just to sit and experience a worship service that's very orderly and mundane and go out and live our lives as we always did. No, we're supposed to be a living, breathing, vibrant community, an organism, a body of Christ that's magnifying and displaying Christ's reality to the world around us. So then, as we look a little further, we look at verse 28. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Here's where we have some uh, gap in our understanding. I'm not sure exactly what's happening in the current church. So if someone speaks a tongue, you don't normally know if there's an interpreter until they're done. Or uh, uh, maybe you do. I, I, I'm not exa- We don't know exactly how this plays out. I remember uh, the Vineyard Churches with John Wimber, and I was kind of interested in how they did things in that church. It's a more charismatic church, and... And if uh, they were very orderly, they were, they took this passage very seriously. And so if I remember right, they had a kind of a group of elders in the back. And if you had a word or a tongue or a prophecy that you wanted to bring to the church that morning, they would actually take you and hear the message that God has for the church and then evaluate it. And if they said it was good, they'd walk you right in and you'd come and bring that message to the church. If you began to bring a message maybe through tongues and they didn't hear of it or know who you were, they would come and take you and escort you out till they could make some evaluation and make sure that there was an interpreter. I mean, some of this stuff is quite different for us. And and so when we think about this, I think we have to ask ourselves, are we too ordered? We have to be open to what the Spirit of God is doing. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but I think this text pushes us to be open to that. Now, um, I was at a church when I was in college, and, and I love the Assemblies of God, and uh, I worked with the Assembly of God pastor very closely as an associate pastor for a while, and uh, I went to this Assembly of God church, and after I was going every Sunday night, I realized that there was a pattern, an orderliness there, and that is that almost every service, there would be someone who would stand up and speak in tongues. And everybody would kind of wait for a moment. And almost all, I mean, all the time, every time I heard the interpretation, it always came from the pastor. So, I mean, that's, that's okay. Sometimes I wonder if there are not interpreters that maybe in the Corinthian church they knew of interpreters who were present when tongues, a message of tongues was given and that interpreter always interpreted. So there is some kind of latitude here. We don't know exactly how this played out. But the important point is that we don't get so orderly that we don't allow the Spirit to work. And we have to figure that out for ourselves, too. But if we read this passage, I think that's the message we should be walking away with. So there are specific instructions about evaluation and knowing if God is moving or speaking and how we do that. This kind of brings me to the difficult passage that I was talking about when we started, where some people take a passage out and use it independent of the context And I'm going to argue for a context for this passage. I'm not totally convinced of it, but it's my best estimate right now. Uh, As I was reading and studying, I found that there are almost as many different interpretations for this text as there are commentators on this text. So uh, it's a difficult passage. And so whenever we come to a difficult passage, we humbly give our best understanding and then we are always open to learn more so let's read the difficult passage Uh, did I read uh, let's pick up at verse 31 for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. And I think this begins to bring us into this area of evaluation and checking out the message. Verse 33. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Verse 34 women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Oh, okay. I've made friends with half of you and made enemies with the other half. No, I don't know. Uh, uh, this this passage is a challenging passage, and and there's some things that I think are important for us to remember, and that is context in the paragraph, context for the book, context for the Bible. And all of that comes into play, much like using certain verses as saying that Jesus wasn't God. You have to look at the context. So when we look at this passage, I think the context is in the context of evaluation of prophecies. That there is a sense in which even tongues and interpretation of tongues kind of means that God is giving the interpretation. But there's still some evaluation and there's some evaluation in Terms of the prophetic word given. And when you look at the context, you remember when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gave instructions to women when they prayed and when they prophesied. We did talk about, well, is it supposed to wear a head covering or not? And what did that mean? And how does all that play out? We talked a bit about that. But the one thing that's undeniable is that Paul was saying, Women, when they pray and when they prophesy, they should do thus and so. So, therefore, Paul is saying that women should pray and prophesy, are free to pray and prophesy. And the context is questionable. Some think, well, that just means in a small group or in a women's group. Some mean, you know, but the context seems to be clearly, I would say, in mixed company because men are not supposed to have a head covering and women are that the context is a church. It's hard to get away from that. And so is Paul directly contradicting himself here? He says women shouldn't say anything. And yet he gave instruction for when they prayed and prophesied. So my explanation for the current moment (laughs) is that this is in the context of evaluation of prophecies. And that the mechanism for evaluating prophecies inevitably is an elder issue. In our church, we don't have women elders. We don't have women senior pastors. We think that there is a distinction of roles in the scriptures. And those roles do not speak to essence, we value love and 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 uh honor women as highly as we can. We're not saying there's a superiority in men, but we do see a mirror of role and responsibility that doesn't violate essence, doesn't violate the value of the person, much as like Jesus' role was in submission to the Father. That didn't mean that his essence was less than the Father, but he submitted himself humbly to the father and Paul seems to maintain some kind of structure of role and relationship and essence of men and women as both being in God's image and and you know honorable and valuable in the same exact way but distinct in role and this is the way I would tackle this that it's in the context of this evaluation and therefore the women, and, and, and I don't deny all the explanations. There's a lot of explanations. Like uh, in the Corinthian church, like I said, we don't know exactly what was happening, but some say the women sat on one side, the men sat on the other, like in the Jewish synagogues. And maybe the women were free. We see in chapter 7 that women were more expressive because of their freedom in Christ and their equality in Christ, and therefore they were asserting themselves and maybe the women were questioning the, 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 the prophecies and the evaluation of the prophecies. And there was debate going on. And it was becoming a little chaotic. So this is Paul stepping in to bring some order to the church. Not to squelch participation. But to provide order. So order magnifies participation. And one of the illustrations I think is helpful is if you go out for a walk downtown, and let's say you had to walk to work every day, and let's say it was two miles, you probably appreciate the order of the road. If there were no sidewalks, if there were no street signs, if there were no speed limits, you didn't know if it was a two-way street or a one-way street, and you were walking to work. And it was like a jungle out there, and you you, you take your life in your hands because there's no order and no structure. There is no freedom and no participation. You're going to stay home. So when there is order, when there's street sign, when there's a speed limit, which is a good thing, if we would follow it. And when there's a speed limit and when there's directions and walk signs, we can walk freely. We can participate. And Paul is trying to bring order to the church so that there would be a magnification of participation, not a squelching of participation. And so as we interpret these passages, we want to do it in a way that magnifies the unity, the orderliness of the church, but also the use of gifts. And so in the evaluation process of prophecy, I think there was the highest board of leadership and eldership was doing the evaluation and that women weren't to participate in that even though they were encouraged to prophesy and to pray in the church. Lastly, as we come to the end, look at verse 36. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or... Are you the only people it has reached? Paul is kind of driving the point home. I'm the apostle. I am bringing God's word. I'm in a place of authority that should not be questioned and that you are charged with hearing the Word of God from the apostle of the church. And the church was thinking that maybe they were independent. Maybe they can set their own rules. Maybe they can be disorderly and have a good time and and just practice all their gifts without any edification to the church. And Paul is challenging them in the strongest way. Did, Did the Word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. As strongly as he can say it, this is God's command for the church. Everything that the church does and everything that we do together in our giftedness and in our participation, in our love for one another, must result in edification for the church, and orderliness and participation. A hard balance, but the expectation for God's people. Therefore, verse 38, but if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. And the, the implied subject, ignored by We must work to keep this balance of participation and orderliness. Don't let church and our worship fall into formal orderliness has no heart and no meaning. Don't let church and your worship fall into freedom and participation and expression without any regard or requirement of edification and building up and representing Christ to the world around us. We must keep those in balance. And in a real sense, it takes us back to probably a picture of God from the very beginning. The beauty of order must be displayed in the church. This is verse 33, jumping up again a little bit. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, and in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Think of the Garden of Eden, when God created the earth. It was formless and void. And his whole work of creation and preparation for our lives was to bring form to it, to kind of settle it, to structure it, to put things in its place, to give a place for human life to flourish and a place for animals to flourish and for his creation to flourish. And you remember what God called first Adam and Eve to do? Come in and manage this garden, to rule over it, to care for it. Let me tell you, When the church is not orderly, when the church is not participative, we are violating God's plan of creation from the very beginning. He longs for the church to be an outpost of His eternal purposes for all of creation. And we're moving in that direction as as Christ restores the creation and makes us new men and women in Christ. And the church must be a reflection of that by our participation and our orderliness and our life together. So therefore, never sacrifice edification of the church for your special gift. It should lay dormant rather than bring destruction to the church. Never disrupt the church with chaos and confusion by asserting your own individual belief and opinion and perspective. We must realize what we have been made as the people of God brought into the community of God. And that is to be a church, a new community, a picture of life under God's reign and God's rule. It's a high calling for us. Let's enter in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's so powerful and so instructive. And we know that you spoke, speak in your word to us. And Lord, we want to be a people that reflects the truth of Jesus. We want to be a community that helps and encourages us as believers together we want to be a community where the gifts of the spirit can can come alive and bring health and maturity and and effectiveness to the body of christ lord we want to do that in a way that reflects who you are the god of peace the god of love and the god of grace so lord we thank you for this truth today Help us to see our connection with one another. Our life together is so important. Help us to magnify Christ in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.